Netflix beats expectations and Twitter beats Elon Musk. In the first round, anyway. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joining me from Colorado. Motley Fool senior analyst, and he's fully caffeinated. It's Tim Byers. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. You are correct. I am fully caffeinated, ready to go. Let's start with Netflix then. Shares up a little bit this morning after the company only lost 970,000 subscribers in the second quarter, not the 2 million subscribers it had originally warned it would lose. And I keep hearing this phrase. I heard it after the bell yesterday. I heard it a bunch this morning. And the phrase is less bad. That's the phrase yeah, being applied to this quarter. It's less bad, which is fine. It's always nice to beat expectations. But just because it's less bad, I don't think it means it's good. You tell me, how good were the results from Netflix? I mean, it's it's almost like a Miller Lite commercial, you know? Great taste, less filling. That's where we're at now. Yeah, less bad is the new good, Chris. I, here's what I think. I don't think this was less bad. I think this was. I mean, technically, it's less bad. You know, the the number of subscribers that Netflix was estimated to lose two million is much much less than that. They came in at you know nine hundred seventy thousand, a little less than a million. That is great, and there is reasonable growth. There's a you know room for optimism here when you strip out the foreign exchange effects. Uh, overall growth up about 13%, about 8 to 9%. Uh, once you factor those in, I mean, a pretty good story here. But what we're looking at longer term is what Netflix is doing to prepare for the future. And I think that's where the optimism lies. And honestly, I think that optimism is fairly well placed. There is some decent work that Netflix is doing to get better at building a long-term growth story. Uh, so, I do like that a lot. They're stripping out about $150 million of regular costs. We should see some improved operating margins on, on that score. They think that operating margins over the long term, at least for the next couple of years, will hit in that 19 to 20% range. That's good. They are still generating cash, if you consider the stock-based compensation. But overall, Chris, I like where the company is headed, and I like that they're leaning into what they have to do. They're not, they're not shying away from this being a challenging time. I'd be way more concerned if they were telling a story that felt unbelievable. Instead, they said, yeah, hands up, this is a challenging time. Here's what we're doing about it. You have to assume that Microsoft is highly invested in 100%. the ad platform working for Netflix. Uh, because, let's face it, uh, Satya Nadella and his team, they want this to work. They want, they, they want this advertising, and, and they want to grow that business. And the single best yep. way to do that is to make sure that Netflix absolutely hits it out of the park with the ad-supported right. tier when it launches later this year. And, uh, I'm not a Netflix shareholder. I'm a Microsoft shareholder. So I'm rooting very hard for the Netflix ad platform to work. 
And I think you have good reason to be at least partially optimistic. I mean, we got some news recently that what seems to be driving the Disney streaming efforts is Hulu. And the reason is because Hulu has cracked the nut on delivering programming that people want and throwing some advertisements in there and getting some good value out of doing so. They're driving some real money there. So if you think about that as a template for what Netflix can do, I think you can be optimistic here. Now, the way they were talking about this on the call is that they they have made real efforts to partner up with Microsoft. They talked about the technology, they talked about the ad serving platform, they talked about the tools that Microsoft has, and that this is a fairly deep partnership. And they they selected Microsoft on the merits. But Chris, I think we can both go beyond that and say that, you know, Microsoft in and of itself as an as an ad business is doing billions upon billions of dollars. I think it's $10 billion actually in terms of their, their ad business right now. So there, there is a lot of there there. But in addition to that, Microsoft has a lot of experience in figuring out hard problems and they have a lot of tenured people that they can throw at this problem. And they have big incentives to get good in this area because their main rival, Google, is already really good in this area. So they would like to have this work and be able to take that experience and put it in other places. There is no word that this is in in any way an exclusive deal for either Microsoft or Netflix. So... I like that a lot. So I agree with you. I, I think there's a lot to root for, and I think there are some things to be optimistic about, both on the Netflix and Microsoft side of things. In the case of Twitter v. Elon Musk, round one went to Twitter. Attorneys for Musk were hoping to delay the trial until next year, but the judge ordered an expedited five day trial to begin this October. So get the popcorn ready. Uh, yeah, right. Any uh, any way you'd like to handicap this? I know you're not an odds maker, but based on what you've seen so far, what stands out to you? Well, I think the main thing that stands out to me is that Elon Musk is not getting what he wants, and he's going to have to make a decision that I think he doesn't want to make sooner than he wants to make it. I imagine there are legal discussions happening right now somewhere in a conference room, uh, either at Tesla headquarters or SpaceX headquarters or somewhere. But I think Elon is talking with lawyers because his options now are growing more limited by the day, which is interesting if you're looking at Twitter. Because right now, Twitter is valued, I think, as we're recording, Chris, it might be around $40 a share, maybe slightly less than that. Maybe this isn't worth $54.20 a share. Maybe not. But do you think that the odds are, given what Elon is going to have to face, that it's worth more than $40? I think the answer to that is, yeah, probably so. So, Elon Musk has some decisions to make. I don't think any of those decisions are comfortable whether that is buying Twitter outright or leaning into some kind of settlement. 
I think both of those are on the table, and there's a real high probability that one of those two things happens. If I had to handicap it, Bill Mann said this morning on the morning show that it's 85%. I don't know that I'd go that high, but I think it's at least 75%. So, yeah, not a good time. If and It's hard to say that, right? Usually, Elon Musk is on top of the world. I don't think that's true anymore. I think it's not a great day to be Elon Musk. It's a great day to be a reporter covering this, because whatever is the outcome here, I have to believe there is an award-winning book underneath a behind-the-scenes tell-all of really just this entire calendar year, starting earlier in the spring when he came out and was like, yep, I'm buying it. Chris, you're not thinking big enough. You're not thinking big enough. Not only is it a book, it's a documentary, and it's an HBO miniseries. That is 100% happening. Come on. You know that's happening, right? Yeah, it probably is, particularly when you think about uh, you know, the Uber miniseries uh, that came out right. earlier this year. 100%. The one about Theranos. So, yeah. And uh, yes. look, uh, just start the casting now for Elon Musk. Let's just... Yeah. Yeah. That's that's right, that's right, and he will have a hand in that. But you but you are right. I mean, this is going to change the way that people look at him. It'll change the way people look at his deal making. Um, this may be the first time, really, that Elon Musk actually gets his hand caught in the cookie jar and doesn't actually pull out a cookie. That would be really interesting. And it changes the dynamics a little bit because up to this point, he really has been as close to untouchable in business as any executive has been, at least in recent memory, Chris. Tim Byers, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. The smaller-than-expected loss of subscribers may have been a relief for Netflix shareholders, but the streamer still has a lot to prove. Ricky Mulvey and Katie Piper take a look at how entertainment companies have pivoted in past recessions and how they could respond in the current environment. Well, we might be in a recession, which means budgets are getting cut, but that doesn't necessarily mean that entertainment spending is going down. So, what does the history tell us, and what's this say about entertainment companies? Joining us now is Katie Piper, before working at The Motley Fool. She got her PhD in Media Studies from the University of Southern California. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. We've talked about the lipstick effect on the show before. Uh, Maria Gallagher and Chris had a great conversation about it, but it's this idea that people still spend on small indulgences, even when there's an economic downturn, uh, recession, depression, you name it. So, what does this effect mean for entertainment spending, and how have we seen it play out historically? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because you know one of the the oldest stories or um, myths that is told around Hollywood or in screen crafting class across the world is that the Great Depression was the best thing that could have ever happened for the entertainment and film industry. They were just getting their legs at the time, and and so the story goes that people were so frustrated with the world, so despairing of the economy, and had so little faith in the economy that they just wanted to spend. Their money at the movies and escape for a little while. And it makes a great story, but it's not true. <laughs> at least not entirely. I'm sure some people were like, 
yellow as I would be today when I spend $20 on a movie ticket, but it's not quite the same thing as a $5 or $7 tube of lipstick. So, what really happened back in the Great Depression is there were so many studios, as many as you can count on hands and toes, and they had to consolidate. They had gotten into a lot of debt uh, for 1920s. Dollars. It was over four hundred million in debt across all of the studios. It's a lot of money back then, and uh, they had to start consolidating. They had to start figuring out how to scale movie production profitably. This is how the the studio system, where stars became part of their stable house, was invented. Was basically to increase that profitability. So it's not that the re- the depression was good for movies in that people didn't care and spent their money. It was good because it forced the companies, the the entertainment studios, to be better about how they spent their money. And that was also at a time where if you wanted to be entertained, that was one of your only options. You didn't have a television. Yes. Radio was still in its nascency. Yes. Um, I, I, I was a great podcast called Plain English with Derek Thompson, and, and he pointed out in, in a recent episode that essentially tickets movie tickets bought per American peaked in about the 1930s, 1940s. I know that's a little bit past the the Depression, but that was 35 movie tickets per person in in America at the time. Uh, Declining ever since, now it's about two or three. So, I'm not saying the Depression had a lot of macro tailwinds, but if you're an entertainment company, you kind of benefit from being the only game in town at that point. Oh, absolutely. And I would say it's not just being the only entertainment company in town, it's the only pastime company in towns in many ways. If you uh, go listen or you know, read oral histories of people who were living and were the consumers during that period, they talk about going to the movies as if the way we would talk about going to spend time in the mall in the 90s. You know, It was a place that was cooler than it was hot outside. You got your news, you got entertainment. It was a social event. It wasn't just that you were going to go see the newest Avengers film. <laughs> We're going to skip forward to the Great Recession, <laughs> because I, I do think there's some lessons from that uh, that time period in particular, as we look to see how entertainment will, companies will pivot moving forward. Uh, you know, 2008 was basically when Netflix pivoted to streaming. That's that's when they really leaned into it. So, what are some of the lessons as you think back to the Great Recession for entertainment companies uh, to pull out moving forward as, as we look toward this one? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, what's interesting during the Great Recession is we saw similar uh, behavior as during the Great Depression, uh, where these entertainment studios had to tighten their belts as they had to get more efficient with their spending, and they started looking at other ways to account for their revenue. Rental films had been a part of their equation since you know the late 90s, but now they had to start thinking about streaming revenue and and long-term IP. And you know, I've said this the last time I was on the show, but really the services that have the most ROI per asset. Uh, so, you know, if you think about HBO, HBO, excuse me, they have a more limited catalog than Netflix did at the time, right? But they're getting a higher return on that asset in terms of views and subscribers. So those are the ones who are best set up during the Great Recession, and probably the ones who are also going to be the best set up now. Let's let's skip ahead to HBO, and particularly it's it's now rival with Amazon because instead of just having studios 
essentially studio rivalries. You now have these streamer rivalries. And I think the biggest one is playing out between HBO and Amazon regarding essentially the future of the fantasy landscape. You have Amazon coming out with this uh, Lord of the Rings spinoff, The Rings of Power. And then you also have HBO's House of the Dragon coming out within just just a few weeks of each other. Uh, wh what are you looking at? How are, how are you seeing that play out? It's interesting, uh, and and what I would say is is it's half deliberate and half coincidence, and and this is something that you see very frequently in the film industry. So are HBO and Amazon uh, going head to head for the same mind share in in the consumer consciousness? Absolutely, they want to be the biggest um, person in the ring, but did they set out to? be the top fantasy business, I would be a little bit more skeptical of that. What I think is really interesting about both of those is they're, they're spin-offs, and that's the big key word. So, they're both looking to double down on sure things that have performed in the past, which is always a behavior that we see during um, market insecurity in the entertainment industry, is that they look towards investments that are uh, predicated on other successes in the past. They're trying to use that data to inform what they do. The other thing is they're looking at the same consumer data. If fantasy topics are and IP are trending in their catalogs, they're going to start putting more money behind developing that. And it makes sense that they're getting the same data data on both platforms. So it's a little bit of a coincidence that they're both fantasy, but it's not a coincidence that they're both doubling down on previous successes. I'm not doubting that having a back catalog of intellectual property uh, is an advantage, particularly for someone like Disney and, and Disney Plus. You can plop your child in front of a Disney Plus screen and then probably go away for a few hours. You're seeing similar things with Paramount Plus, HBO obviously leaning on, on Game of Thrones. I wonder if there is an advantage for Netflix in not having that and that they have to be scrappy. That has allowed them to, I guess, essentially create the new wave of reality television shows with things like Love is Blind. They have, you know, I don't think you have the Squid Game phenomenon if you're able to lean on a back catalog like Disney can with, with the Star Wars franchise. I would agree with that. I would say that Netflix's superpower is always figuring out how to do what the other mainstream providers, whether it's Disney or HBO, have more money to do. So, you know, with Netflix, it's often acquiring international content like Squid Games, um, Squid Game. So, they do have that scrappiness. But if you look at the spread of their money versus the number of IP they're acquiring, there's just a lot of bloat there. Uh, so that's sort of the the downside of it is that they, they can't be certain that they're betting on a sure thing when they acquire that that information or. Uh, that IP. And the other thing is, is I think there's a lot of um, signals, if you pay attention to industry news, showing that Netflix is pretty nervous themselves at the moment. They recently updated their culture memo internally for their employees. And previously, their culture memo had a section saying that, you know, we're not going to reduce your salaries during difficult times because we want to reward, reward good business savvy. And they took that out, which is uh, a pretty interesting statement by omission. Yeah, Netflix is on the ropes Certainly, and I think it'll be interesting to see how how they come out of that. As a uh, as a Netflix shareholder, uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be bullish on the company. This weekend, we have Comic Con going on for the first time in a few years. Um, what are you watching for as as uh, Comic Con happens in San Diego? 
Great question. And uh, I have to say, as someone who has been to Comic-Con in the past, who has watched Comic-Con for years, I am very jaded by how much money goes into the publicity stunts by the big studios at this point. So, I tend to not pay as much attention to the noise that's just being generated by the studios. Really, it's just a uh, signal of how much money they're willing to sink into a franchise, but it doesn't actually mean that there's going to be revenue that follows. What I usually watch for and, and what has held true this year so far is where the fans are going. And I don't just mean who's talking about it on Twitter, although that can be an interesting sentiment. I'm looking at things like suddenly we have a show that it is named Our Flag Means Death. It's from HBO and it suddenly has more cosplayers showing up to conventions across the country, similar to Star Wars or Marvel. This tiny little show in its first season is already getting a strong presence. Its fans are driving sellout merchandise in the market at Target and other retailers, not because it's licensed merchandise for the show, but because the fans saw something that they thought tied into the show. So these are these are big market moving forces similar to what we see with like K-pop fans. But it's from a show that has relatively gotten little publicity in other respects. But it's been it had been at the top of the chart for most uh, anticipated uh, or most in-demand show on streaming services for five weeks straight, even eclipsing Disney's Moon Knight. So I tend to look more at where is the fan sentiment and where is the fan demand coming from and less where the publicity budgets are. It's, it was hard to be excited about Moon Knight. But hey, we're not listening to the tweets. We're watching what the cosplayers are doing. I love that going into this weekend. Katie Piper from The Motley Fool, thanks for joining us. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.